today's read, Midnight, a Gangster Love Story by Sister Soldier, Chapter 29, The Contract. Thursday dissolved so quickly, the day just flew by filled with usual and unusual errands and familiar and unfamiliar faces. For the first time, Uma and Naja were not sleeping at home. I had escorted both of them to the palace hotel. Uma and Naja would remain there with the family of the bride who had arrived earlier in the day from the Sudan. There were five rooms booked under the bride's father's name and three rooms under the groom's father's name, not including Fozzie's incredible suite. There would be an Islamic gathering, males hosted separately from the females. The goal was clear for Uma. She was working for the groom to make the bride's family feel comfortable in an unfamiliar place. She was to do what she does best, make everything look and smell and feel beautiful. I felt relieved after I left them safely in the palace. I told myself that I could feel relieved like this every day once I had both of them out of the area in Brooklyn where we lived. I had already decided that the week after the wedding, we would begin looking at various affordable properties since we would be in clear reach of our financial goal. My day was spent traveling and meeting up with and checking in on independent contractors who were retained to perform some service or other for the huge wedding ceremony on Sunday. However, even training at the dojo and practicing with the basketball team, I felt lighter with Uma and Naja safely tucked away and surrounded by people who at least in general believed the same exact things, no surprises. Late night alone, I played my music in the apartment. I could walk around with my shirt off. I could exercise in my underwear. In my bedroom, I could throw my knives without a second thought with the bedroom door open. After my repetitions, I could collapse on the floor, staring at the ceiling, thinking about Akimi. Her phone call began with her silence. Then, just her breathing. Then the words, Mayonaka, hansamu, arigato, kosamasau. She was thanking me. That part I could tell. Those were the only words she said that I understood. The words that followed were all in Japanese, but she seemed so sure about speaking her language to me. I just listened to her soft sound, which slowed down and then sped up, suddenly excited. I decided from her rhythm and melody that she received the balloons, maybe even the flowers I had sent to her uncle's store, and that she would come along with me on Saturday after work to the ceremony. Her call ended strangely with her silence. Then I could hear her breathing. A pause, and then the words, Mayanaka, Ashitru. The next sound was the click. I wanted to know the meaning of her last word, but I didn't. I wanted to know from where and what time to pick her up, but I didn't. While I was thinking about whether or not to call her back this late at night, her cousin's house, my phone rang again. 
Akimi insisted on calling you first. Now it's me. It was her cousin. How are you? I asked her. Okay, I think, she answered. Anyway, there are balloons everywhere all over my house, she said. Do you like them? I asked her. It doesn't really matter. Akimi loves them. She is thrilled and no one can even talk to her. They're very nice, really, she admitted reluctantly, it seemed. Will she be able to come on Saturday, I asked. Who can stop her? She was supposed to do something here at our house with our family. It's been planned for so long since we're all out of school and work, but she will come to you on Saturday, no doubt. Uncle has said that if Akimi wants to go along with your family, then I had to go along with you too. I don't want to cancel my plan, so I don't know what is going to happen. I'll let you know, she said. One question, I caught the cousin before she hung up the phone. Aishitru, what does this word mean? Did Akimi say this to you? The cousin asked. I paused instead of answering her question. I, I don't know. Maybe you're pronouncing it wrong, she said. I have to go now. And she hung up. On Saturday at 5 p.m., when I rounded the corner to the Palace Hotel, she was standing there. Even though her cousin had phoned me at the very last minute to ask me about the address, I was still stunned. She was standing taller than usual, and the first thing I noticed were her incredibly expensive black ostrich-skinned stiletto heels and matching black ostrich clutch bag. She wore a silk black dress which was well tailored to her figure and cut short just below her hips. She wrapped her waistline with a beautiful silver gray scarf, causing her mini dress to ride up even higher. Thankfully, she wore matching black silk capris underneath, covering her legs. Her dark eyes came out more with the coordination of her clothes. They were like an endless sea of beauty. Her natural nails were manicured immaculately with a clear polish with a hint of gray sheen that could only be noticed if you looked closely. Her jet black hair, the way it flowed and surrounded the jet black dress, and the way her jet black eyes peered from her face, I was floored by her. I felt everything shifting within me. Still, I managed to appear cool. Playfully, I walked past her as if she wasn't standing right there. She called out my name softly as if I could have missed seeing her standing there. She followed behind me quietly. Even the sound of her heels against the pavement caught my attention and aroused me, yet it was impossible for me to follow my natural instincts. I should have ordered a magic carpet. Her shoes alone were too expensive for the ground, I thought to myself. In the lobby of the hotel, I pulled the silver gray scarf she had wrapped tightly around her waistline of her dress and put it over her hair instead, tying it in the back. She was still and allowed me. We were standing so close that her scent gave me fever. 
The way I tied it wasn't a Muslim style of wearing the scarf, but it was fashionable the way Akimi would rock it. It complimented her, while covering her hair as all of the women in the ceremony would have their hair covered. Truthfully, I wanted to cover her hair. I had begun to feel that it was mine, for only me to see, and that she was mine also. The elevator door opened, revealing Uma and Naja. Uma was a radiant star. Her silver thobe, made of an elegant and fine sheer cloth, was a sparkling outer garment to her long silver gray dress beneath. During the two and a half days of our separation, she had applied a beautiful henna design to her fingers, hands, and feet. Her style and beauty had everyone passing through the palace hotel lobby in complete awe. Two curious and fascinated European ladies interrupted her, delaying her from reaching us. I introduced Akimi to Uma and Naja in Arabic. Instinctively, Akimi bowed her head down to Uma. When she raised it up, she reached out to Uma's hands and flipped them over, feeling her palms with her fingers, her eyes showing complete amazement at Uma's henna art. Even after several seconds, Akimi was still staring and holding Uma's wrists. Uma smiled, adjusted her hand to hold Akimi's, and began walking away with her only saying to me in Arabic, we will see you tonight at the ceremony. I love you, son. Naja held back and said, she is so pretty. She doesn't speak English, I informed Naja, and she doesn't know what's happening here today. Well, she should fit right in, Naja laughed. I gave Naja a kiss on the cheek and told her, take good care of Akimi then sent her on her way to catch up with the ladies. In Fozzie's suite, I warmly greeted the Sudanese men gathered there in the living room. I felt like I was not myself. Right then, I was my father in his private area of our estate, greeting his guests and business associates, a gathering of men in the finest suits and most elegant traditional wear as well, surrounded by swirling cigar cigarette and beady smoke, the quiet murmur of the men speaking only the important words, following through on previous agreements and making new plans and deals, filled the suite. In the foyer, I pulled out a heavy wooden chair with a dense cushion that was covered by a thick upholstery embroidered with a scene of the bland British ancients. I sat down. I needed to be seated close to the telephone. Discreetly, I began calling business numbers on a long checklist that I had prepared to make sure that every detail was absolutely covered for tomorrow's wedding. There were the tent builders who had already constructed the wedding site. I needed to confirm the tent takedown and final payment date. There were the painters, two Sudanese and two Iranians whose services Uma and I contracted. I needed to push those guys. They did great work, but were scheduled to complete their job yesterday morning. Yesterday evening when I phoned them, I found them still finishing up, which delayed me from arranging their payment. The fruit, flour, and candy deliveries for tomorrow morning needed to be reconfirmed, even though I had confirmed them yesterday. The portable commode people needed a confirmation as well. And then there was the company where we rented the chairs. I had 
a half an hour before the limousines would arrive here at the palace, so I used my time effectively. When the groom's uncle, Mr. Ghazali, arrived, he and I would get squared away with all of the checks that needed to be issued to pay the various independent contractors. We would go over the details once more so that everything would flow as planned, inshallah. Limousines lined the cluttered streets of New York and brought the business at the Palace Hotel to a standstill. Seated inside one of them, I watched Uma, Akimi, and Naja entering another limo with some women from the bride's family. Akimi was the last to get in. She stood watching everything as though she were not a part of it. She looked left to right, stared at the women from head to toe, and eventually gazed up at the sky. I traveled with Fozzie, his father and uncle, and two male cousins. Fozzie's father was intense and pensive, the way powerful men like my father tend to be. He and his son were dressed to the nines in tuxedos. I had chosen a clean black Armani suit. All of our white shirts were glistening. Uncle Ghazali and his two sons all wore white jalabayas. Believe me, they were looking sharp and crisp as well. There was not one speck to blemish the bright whiteness of their cloths. On the floor of the limo were six pairs of brand new shoes, ranging from Mr. Ghazali's J.C. Penney's to Fozzie and his father's mean and authentic black crocodiles. I felt powerful seated among all of them, although my status was the same today as it was yesterday. A small ceremony at the mosque for the signing of the Ajid, Uma had said. Nothing compared to the actual wedding ceremony. The spacious, medium-sized mosque was filled up with the groom and bride's relatives. Despite the expensive wares, when the call to prayer, the azan was sung out, in complete unity, the ummah bowed their heads to the ground and made salat. The feeling was so unexpected and awesome to be welcomed into a mosque and make prayer among an international Islamic community right here in America. I felt overwhelmed. There was such incredible power in the call to prayer. It humbled even the richest of the believers. The words entered the body, aroused the spirit, and soothed the soul. They caused the knees to willingly bend and the head to touch the ground in a way that no believing man would bow for any other reason any other time. Imam Musa was in Jalabaya, his head wrapped in a turban. He was a tall Sudanese African. He sat facing the Ummah and in front, but between the bride's family and the groom's family. He had a small table at his side and a holy Quran mounted on a carved wooden stand. After his salutations to Allah, he offered the Qutbah, which is the spiritual message exclusively in the Arabic language. It is the responsibility of a Muslim man to be the guardian of his wife and family. In today's times, the non-believers scream, why marriage? Why limit myself? Why bother? In Islam, we have always had a tradition of marriage. We marry, however, not because it is a a tradition, but because Allah requires this from us 
and Allah is the best knower of all things. And Allah always commands us to do what is best for us, whether we know it or not. The arrogant will scream, I know what is best for me. I don't care what is best for everybody else. But a person who is arrogant is also ignorant. Otherwise, arrogance would not be his chosen way of life. We marry because a complete family is the foundation of life and civilization. Where there is a man who willingly bows down to Allah and voluntarily obeys Allah's laws, there is a man capable of respecting limits, of being a good husband, the responsible party and good father. Not sometimes, but each and every day. A woman who bows down to Allah and obeys Allah's laws is a good woman who is modest, wise, and mature of intellect. Women who are wise are the opposite of boastful, conceited, and flagrant. And a boastful, conceited, and flagrant woman is never necessarily intelligent. Where there is a humble man who accepts the limits imposed on him by God, a man who bows his head in prayer, thought, and praise, along with a modest woman who observes her limits and bows her head in prayer, thought, and praise, happy children can be born to live happy and balanced lives. Happy and balanced children respect their parents because it was their parents who cultivated their knowledge of Allah. Happy children, in turn, bow their heads in prayer, thought, and praise as they witnessed their parents do. Among the arrogant, ignorant, proud, and boastful non-believing people, there are born nations of unhappy children living unbalanced lives, drowning in depression and anxieties. Children who love things more than they love the womb which bore them. Arrogant, ignorant men make horrible husbands to their wives, whether they are rich or poor. They make horrible fathers to their children, are full of fancy and deceitful words and promises. But they are only capable of the no-show. Even with a pocket or bank filled with money in their name, they can only pay out in pain and sadness. There is a short life for them on earth and an eternal and roaring fire in their future. Immodest, boastful women of no shame and no limits make horrifying wives and mothers who can only make themselves look and appear good, but they are rotten on the insides and in their wombs is only misery. But enough of this. Today is a celebration of this Muslim man, man, and this Muslim woman and who together will bow their heads in prayer and thought and praise to Allah who have both agreed to live their lives and conduct themselves in accordance with Allah's laws. And inshallah, they will bring forth many happy children who will live good lives and do good things and humble themselves in prayer and thought and praise of Allah too. Each of his words fell like large rocks on my shoulders and head. I was reminded of what I must do and in which order I must do it. 
but I was not 100% confident that I could get it right. My eyes surveyed the people in the room. As Imam Musa carried out the asking and answering of the questions to the bride and groom, there was Fawzi and his father and mother seated beside him. I could see now that he also had three sisters who were older than him as well. He was not only the only son, he was the baby of his family. Still, he looked so strong seated up there with his family, including his uncle and aunt and their two sons and three daughters. This scenario reminded me of my father posing for a rare photo we had taken at our estate on the last day that I saw him. It was my father standing beside Uma, his first wife, and Amata, his second wife, and Hanifa, his third wife. My northern grandfather was there. My Uma's two brothers were there with their children, cousins of course, and babies, brothers and sisters, and an unborn Naja lying safely in a welcoming womb. In the delight of the completed signatures and a jid agreement, I caught a glance of Akimi who held on to Uma as if they had known each other for years. I thought to myself, ain't nothing wrong with that. Mr. Ghazali and I had to go. He said we would take one of the town cars and head to Westchester, which was the wedding ceremony site. We needed to check with our eyes to assure that everything was perfect for tomorrow. This evening was the spiritual seal, he said. Tonight is the party for the groom and his male family and friends, and another for the bride and her female family and friends. Tomorrow is the splendor. He had a genuine energy, excitement, and happiness about his nephew's wedding. Even though I could easily see that the greatest portion of their extended family's wealth was in his older brother's hands, I felt nothing but love and commitment coming from Mr. Ghazali towards all of his family members. I thought, however, that the splendor would be when the groom finally gets to lift the veil of his wife in privacy and gets to know his peace. Uma's eyes moved over me carefully as I stood before her and Akimi. Then her eyes moved over Akimi as well. Then back and forth like a ping pong match. Akimi can remain with me while you go handle the business, she said. We have to return to the palace for the bride's henana, she said. Henana, I asked, wondering. It's the party for the bride, women only. We will bathe her. I will prepare her and paint on her henna. You will see the results tomorrow night at the wedding ceremony, Uma said, speaking only in Arabic. And Akimi? I have to bring her back home to her family tonight, I said. When you are finished working, return to the palace, phone up to the penthouse, Akimi, and Naja will come down. You can take Naja along with you as you return Akimi to her home, she said softly. No matter how gently she spoke, I knew this is how it needed to happen. No negotiations. The smooth ride of the Lincoln town car lulled Naja to sleep. Of course, she sat in between Akimi and I, falling off into Akimi's lap the same as she would if it were Uma. As the drivers sped around the deep curves of Edgewater and up into the cliffs of Inglewood, Akimi placed the palm of her hand 
onto the back of my neck through flashes of light provided by ignited signs and random street lamps we looked into one another deeply her hair was down now falling mostly on her left shoulder the scarf was in the palm of her left hand her million dollar shoes were off her pretty feet rested on the car carpet her toes were nicely shaped nails clear with a hint of a polished gray tint like her fingernails her feet looked soft and beautiful like the inside of her thighs sensations were flowing through my body as she caressed my ears and touched the side of my face the west african driver appeared oblivious to everything except the road if she kept it up i would not be able to stand up when the car stopped right now the only thing separating me from the long sermon of imam musa was my respect for my young sister and the wrong impression i would have caused if she woke up and saw me all over akimi giving in to my intense feelings i knew i could not hold on to this warm 16-year-old female by keeping her waiting and desiring and in a holding pattern finally parked in front of the plum tree on honeysuckle lane the driver shifted gears into reverse and landed us in front of the long path to her cousin's house which was lit up by small metal lamps that led to the front door the driver hopped out to open my door i got it good looking out i told him so he would get back in his seat i got out instead and moved around the back of the car to her side i opened the door and helped her place her pretty feet back into her shoes i awoke naja to free up akimi's lap she climbed out dazed and dizzy she awakened slowly as the spring night chill alerted her senses i extended my hand for akimi she came willingly pop the trunk i told the driver grabbing akimi's shopping bag of items she had collected at the bride's party and probably from uma as well we three walked up her path quietly akimi's hand held onto the back of my belt her body was brushing against my back with our every step a nice house naja said are we going inside she asked no the driver is waiting for us i'll take you right back to the palace with uma i told her in front of the door i reached into my inside jacket pocket and pulled out an engraved wedding invitation i handed it to akimi and said if you would like to come to the wedding tomorrow i would love to see you i smiled at her in the dark knowing that she could not understand she smiled at me too she doesn't speak english i thought you already knew naja informed me half a second later her cousin pulled open the front door whose car is that she interrogated without a proper greeting ours i answered it's almost midnight she said instantly akimi began speaking to her softly in their language i interrupted them i have to leave now good night i said good night her cousin said hurriedly like sure go the wedding is tomorrow evening if akimi would like to come we can meet at the palace in the lobby at 3 p.m. we were there today akimi knows where it is i said to the cousin as her, as i grabbed my sister's hand to leave wedding 
her cousin raised her voice. <laughs> I smiled, realizing she didn't know. Not me and Akimi's wedding tomorrow. Maybe some other day, I teased. Just look at the invitation. Akimi has it in her hand, I said. If she can't come, it's okay. Thank you.